Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Today's story of the healing miracles that Jesus performed uh, comes to us in the lectionary in sort of a surprising way, given the last month that we've just been through. The Christmas and Epiphany seasons are very timeline event focused. The lectionary takes us on a journey through these seasons. First, we have the birth of Jesus, then his circumcision eight days later, then the adoration of the Magi when he was just a toddler. Uh, Then normally on the Sunday within the Octave of Epiphany would be the time when he's found teaching in the temple at only 12 years of age. Then on the Octave of Epiphany, we have his baptism in the Jordan by John. And finally, on the Sunday after that, we hear about his first miracle at the wedding in Cana. So a very chronological sequence of events that we uh, go through in the seasons of Christmas and Epiphany. Uh, But now today, the chronology is sort of abandoned just a little bit in favor of beginning to focus on certain themes. But I still think it's worth noting where today's story fits in with that whole previous timeline anyway, just to give us context. We should always know where we are in the church calendar uh, with each feast day and from Sunday to Sunday, because this is part of how we participate in worship. The idea is that the cycle of seasons of feasts and fasts and the lectionary is supposed to shape us in our lives because time, like every other facet of creation, is subject to Christ. And we, part of our role as stewards of creation, are supposed to help subject creation to Christ. And this is how we subject time to him. So today's gospel begins, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. The mountain he's coming down from is the mountain where he gave the Sermon on the Mount. It's that mount. Uh, So clearly, he's already attracting massive crowds. So how did we get to this point? After Jesus' baptism, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, seem to indicate that Jesus went straight into the desert to be tempted, then came back 40 days later, heard that John had been arrested, and then went off into Galilee to start a preaching tour. Um, which is, Galilee is about as far north as you get in Israel before uh, getting to the, like, Syrian and Lebanon, where the Sea of Galilee is also up there. Um, and so it's during this preaching tour on the Sea of Galilee in the city of Bethsaida, which is a little fishing town on the north shore there, that Jesus picked up his disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, all of whom were fishermen. Now, in John's gospel... Of course, his timeline is a little different than the synoptics, as is usually the case. Um, He says that Jesus first encountered Andrew and another unnamed uh, man, probably St. John himself, because he never names himself in his own gospel. Uh, These two men, Andrew and probably John, were actually first disciples of John the Baptist, that they were hanging out with him at the Jordan River during his whole ministry thing. And it's in that context that John points them to Jesus. And then Andrew goes and uh, gets his brother uh, Peter and says, look, we found the Messiah. And it's also in this context that um, Nathan and Philip uh, also are introduced to Jesus. And reconciling these these two accounts, the Gospels of uh, John and the Synoptics, is actually pretty easy if we understand that these men were simply 
they first met Jesus near the Jordan River while John was uh, doing his thing, baptizing and, and whatnot. And then they were later actually called by Jesus when he was walking through their hometown and spots them by the lake. So when Jesus calls Peter and Andrew and John and James and all the rest of them, they don't throw down their nets and follow a stranger, someone they've never met. They've met and spent time with Jesus already in the context of John the Baptist's ministry. And now, presumably 40 days plus some later after Jesus is done the temptation in the desert and is now walking around Galilee, he finds these men and calls them to be his disciples officially. Uh, so this is, you know, now, now that Jesus has picked up disciples and he's wandering around Galilee preaching and doing things, this is why um, when we come to the wedding in Cana, Cana, which is in Galilee, it says that Jesus is invited to this wedding with his mother and his brothers, and he also brings these disciples in tow. He's already got disciples. I don't know if they had invitations or if they were just crashing. Uh, the scriptures doesn't actually say, but I think it ended up being okay given that Jesus made a whole bunch of really good wine. I think any guests that he brought with them were uh, got, a, got a pardon. And so immediately after the wedding in Cana, John also says that Jesus and his mother and brothers and disciples head off to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is just a few miles away from Bethsaida, the, the hometown of Peter and Andrew and James and John. And uh, we actually hear later on that Capernaum is the, the town where Peter's mother-in-law lives. So it's, it's kind of in the neighborhood. And so Jesus and mother and brothers and disciples all go off to Capernaum because they already have some ties there. Now, because of the wedding in Cana, Jesus' reputation as an awesome preacher is uh, expanded even farther now to miracle worker. <laughs> and so whatever crowds were following him just because he was the best rabbi they'd ever heard are now following him even more so because he's a miracle worker, which is why at the beginning of the story, there are so many crowds already following him and why he's got to climb up a mountain out in, out in the wilderness to, uh, to address everybody because the crowds are so big. That's the context of our gospel today. So now with all of that background, we can uh, dig into where we start today. While they were all right there in Capernaum, Jesus is uh, outside the town and the hill is actually a hill. You can you see pictures of it. There's a, a little chapel up there where um, the Sermon on the Mount took place. It's called the Mount of the Beatitudes. Jesus is up there preaching, and he delivers the most famous ethical address ever delivered in human history, and the people are just stunned. And after the sermon, he's coming down the hillside, and uh, he encounters a leper at the bottom. Now, I, I imagine that Jesus has given this address, and he's now going down the mountain, and the crowds are following him. So Jesus is out in front. The leper, who couldn't mingle with the crowds or, or make his way through them to get to Jesus has to wait till Jesus is coming back his direction so that he can meet him because he's not supposed to be around people. So this leper is outside the town at the bottom of the hill waiting for Jesus. And when Jesus comes up to him, the leper probably approaches more closely than people think he ought to, kneels down before him. Interestingly, this is the first time we see anyone kneeling in front of Jesus since the Magi. And he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. The phrasing of that, the humility, the faith is astounding. He doesn't just start begging. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. My fate is in your hands. 
I have to imagine that the crowds standing right behind Jesus now are, they've grown silent waiting on Jesus' reply to this as the leper again is probably uncomfortably close to Jesus. And I also imagine that there's an audible gasp and maybe a couple ladies fainting when Jesus stretches out his hand and touches this leper. He touches him and he says, I will be clean. And instantly the man was cured of his leprosy. I picture, I mean, how do we know the man was instantly cured of his leprosy? I assume he starts rolling up his sleeves and you know pulling down his neck and looking everywhere that leprosy might have been and realizes everything is completely restored now that, that had been rotting away. The crowd seeing this and probably knowing the man and his condition shout out in amazement with waves of cheers roaring through the crowd as the word spreads to the back about what had just happened. And what Jesus says next, I figure he probably has to lean in and shout a little bit over the noise of the crowd now uh, in this uproarious amazement. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So he sends the man off saying not to talk to anyone, not to get sidetracked or distracted in your excitement, but to go straight to the local priest and show him that you're healed and offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving prescribed in the law for such a healing. Now, in the Gospel of Mark that we heard in the uh, office, we, we find that the man actually did get sidetracked, that he didn't go straight to the priest, that he instead ran off telling everyone that he could find um, and so actually disobeyed Jesus. And it caused him some problems because now Jesus is so famous, he can barely move around in this region because everyone is crowding in to, uh, to get some, some healing action. Um, but Jesus says this would be a proof to them when he sends them off uh, to, to do the, the, the priest and the sacrifice and all that. A proof to who? Well, it would prove to anybody who knew the man that he was really healed. If anyone knew the man and knew that he was a leper, going to the priest, getting a clean bill of health, and uh, receiving sort of a declaration of cleanness would be proof that he was truly clean. It would allow him to resume normal communal life again. Uh, and not be you know, banished to the margins and, and begging his bread, keeping his distance. But it would also be a proof to any skeptics that the man standing before them who now clearly has no leprosy was in fact previously a leper. Because what, what scam artist or, or a kook or crazy person would bother with the burden of the thanks offering and, and all of that if he hadn't truly been healed? So Jesus wants this man to do everything by the book to ensure that he's believed and properly reintegrated into society. Jesus probably also anticipated the resistance that a healing like this might provoke from certain priests and synagogue rulers and other powers that be, as we'll see in future cases where the healed are sent off in a similar way from Jesus. Because these kinds of people, they cannot stand to see good things fall outside their chosen framework, whether it be a, a religious system like the, the Pharisees or, or you know, um, the people who couldn't stand to see Jesus healing people on the Sabbath because it's the Sabbath. Um, or a political ideology. You know, we don't know anything about that in our day, do we? Seeing goodness, truth, or beauty, if it contradicts the framework, throws them into confusion and panic and anger. It's like our epistle reading said, it's like heaping burning coals on top of their head. That's a confusion. These people can't handle this cognitive dissonance, seeing something good and beautiful if it doesn't 
fit within the way they think things should be happening. So anyway, after the now cleansed man hurries off, Jesus and the much noisier crowd uh, enter back into Capernaum. And as they do, a Roman centurion approaches Jesus with his own request of a healing. I think it's probable that in the short distance between where Jesus healed the leper and the, the town, people had probably run ahead and started telling everyone they could find about what had happened. And the centurion, whose business it is to know what's going on, and it's, you know, a, a commotion arises, he hears the news and immediately sets off to the front of the town to meet Jesus as he comes in. So when the centurion tells Jesus about his servant, Jesus, whether with knowledge about the centurion's intent or not, it's not clear, he anticipates what would have been the next logical question, will you come and heal him? Jesus says, I will come and heal him. But what the centurion says next is so remarkable, so profound, so important, that the gospel says Jesus marveled, which is what makes me think in this case, maybe Jesus didn't actually foreknow the centurion's intent. Lord, the centurion calls him, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. He goes on to say that he knows how authority works in well-ordered ranking of soldiers and servants, implying that Jesus' obvious metaphysical authority must grant him at the very least the same privilege to just be able to say a thing and it be done. The analogous leap from social and military authority to a spiritual and metaphysical authority that the centurion makes is what makes Jesus marvel at his faith. That, of course, combined with his humility and in insisting that his unworthiness, you know, before this, this Jew whose country his government is occupying, uh, and also his obvious compassion for his servant. So Jesus marvels at the centurion. And then he spins around to that noisy crowd behind him, still riding the high from the earlier healing of the leper. And he says this, Nowhere in all Israel have I encountered a faith like this. In fact, one of these days, people from all over the world, outside of Israel, east and west, will be communing with your patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while sons of Israel will be out in the outer darkness, weeping and gnashing their teeth. I bet that got the crowd to pipe down. Then turning back to the centurion, Jesus says, go be it done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus was of course willing to go to the house, to enter under his roof, to stretch out his hand again and to touch the sick servant. But instead, in this case, he performs the healing exactly in the manner the centurion believed that he could, simply saying the word and accomplishing the healing in that instant because of his authority. We, in the future, throughout the Gospels, will see many emotional reactions from Jesus because Jesus, being fully man, of course, has emotions and reacts emotionally, but his emotions are in perfect harmony with his divine will. But the emotions that we generally are going to see from Jesus are going to be disappointment at lack of faith, anger at just sheer um, unethical and worse idolatrous behavior from uh, the people of God, and compassion. He'll meet people and, and feel, we, we see over and over, Jesus felt compassion. But rarely do we see him marvel at anything. That's a pretty unique emotion, at least as recorded in the Gospels. 
And because of this, the church has taken notice and followed the pattern of humility exemplified by the satyrian, putting his words in our mouth every liturgy before we receive the Eucharist. Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof, but speak the word only, and my soul shall be healed. That's how important that answer, that humility, truly is. The two healings in today's story continue on the theme of Epiphany, which is the revealing of Jesus' nature to the world, the whole world, both to Jews and Gentiles. In healing the leprous man and instructing him to show himself to the priest, Jesus' power is revealed to the house of Israel. In healing the servant of the centurion, a Gentile, and especially in that very explicit prophecy that he gives, he reveals that the kingdom of God is also for the Gentiles. So how else does this story continue the theme of Epiphany? We are still in Epiphany tide after all. Uh, well, from the Feast of Epiphany to today, three Sundays and quite a bit of historical narrative later, what has happened? First, Magi knelt before him, and today one of his own fellow Jews kneels before him. The Magi brought offerings for a king, and today Jesus commands thank offerings be made because of the healing he performed by his kingly authority. The Magi entered under Jesus' roof, and today another Gentile has the humility to say, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. And finally, the Gentile Magi sought out the Jewish king. And today, the Jewish king confirms that his kingdom is for the Gentiles too. So may we all, Jew and Gentile, have the same humility as the centurion to admit that we aren't worthy that Christ should come under our roof and to have more diligence than the leprous man made clean in actually going off and accomplishing, offering a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving for all the ways that Christ does stretch out his hand, regardless of our unworthiness to touch us and to save us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.